This episode of the Hardman Podcast is brought to you by Salt and Strings Butchery. Order your custom beef bundle today. It's also brought to you by Private Family Banking, helping Christians take dominion through privatized banking. And finally, today's episode is brought to you by Backwards Planning Financial, building multi-generational wealth with Joe Garrisey. Well, welcome to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Kahn, and joined by Dick Buckus himself. We've got Mr. Andrew Isker, <laughs> my favorite Minnesotan. And uh, Andrew, just, you know, first of all, welcome to the show. I know that your Vikings Thank are you. horrible. You know, they're as they bad are. as the Broncos, quite frankly. Uh, yeah, uh, only a little bit better. I think they have a one win. <laughs> one, one whole win. We beat the Bears, and they were like, I think we gave like 300 yards passing to Justin Fields, who is like one of, one of the worst in the league. Like so the worst. Yeah. yeah. So to my guy, Andrew Isker, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Mr. Eric Kahn. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Andrew, we are going to jump in. I, I, I thought we'd start with a sports thing. And uh, the, the sports thing uh, is, uh, I was fascinated by this story because it's an issue that I talk about a lot. Women's sin. Uh, maybe we shouldn't believe all women. Just the other day, you remember the story with the uh, Dodgers pitcher, Trevor Bauer. Trevor Bauer, yeah. Trevor Bauer. Trevor is a piece of filth. He's been vilified in the news media. He's, you know, assaulted women. Only one problem. Everything comes out after court in discovery, and it turns out she lied. She, she made, made it, it up. all up. She mm-hmm. said she made it up to destroy him and to steal his money. Andrew, obviously, this is the first time in history that we found out a woman lied about something sexual in this manner. I'm sure you were shocked. I'm sure you were shocked. I was. I was beside myself. I couldn't contain my my disbelief when I discovered <laughs> what happened. I mean, it yeah, is it, was, it is actually sickening, Andrew. When you when oh, you think totally about is, like yeah. like a Cy Young award winning pitcher, two years of his career, he'll never get back. Nobody seems to be like in line to apologize to him. Like, sorry, we smeared you. People have receipts of this, by the way. ESPN and others have have slandered the guy. Well, and there were reporters that had access to info from her that exonerated him and they still lied. Like, I mean, he has, well, he so can, that, he that, could get some defamation money. I, I can't remember the newspaper. It was a big one. It was like the Miami Herald or so, somebody like this. Yeah. yeah one of the big um, ones. had information. The reporter had the information that he did not in fact choke this lady, that she made it up, but they still published that he choked her. Uh, it's hard to sue for defamation, but uh, you probably got a case there. <laughs> Yeah, that w- when it's actually in writing, and we all have a record of it. So I want to ask you about that. Just it, as you think about that case, you know, I'm particularly interested whether kind of the Me Too bent of our culture wakes up and changes at all. I kind of don't think so, uh, but it seems like a, a, especially a lot of young people, uh, young men are like watching this very closely. Even guys like Cernovich, like they were all over this. They were like, this guy's been completely wronged. That's the first place I saw it was when he retweeted it. Yeah. And and so I, I I think you know to your question here like is is this going to change you know not the overarching culture and the the media or anything like that they're not going to they're going to keep doing these things I mean you, you see it all all over the place I mean like I think back to like Kavanaugh right nothing did anyone suffer any consequences for for lying about him no no there's not there's not going to be any consequences for it at all and even like Major League Baseball right they they kick him out without any due process or evidence, things like this. He just lied about and, and smeared and his reputation is ruined forever. And yeah, two years. I mean, you only have so much time. It's like, it's a very short career. You have a and short window. The, yeah. And he's at the very peak of it and he loses it. It's gone. Uh, just, it, it, it is so disgusting. So I think, I mean, the thing is like the people, people see it like people that, you know, listen to us and, and, and kind of in, in our world, uh, they see it and, and, what, what ends up happening? I mean, the, one of the difficult things is like, I think, but I have daughters, if something happened to them, you know, you, things can go from one ditch to the other very quickly. And what this does, what false accusations do is it makes it harder for when, when something's genuine and real for people to believe them. Yeah. You get where nobody actually believes the woman, even if it is true. Boy cries wolf enough times and no one believes them. And so like, I mean, that's, that's a possibility. I don't think we're anywhere near that, but but that's that's what this kind of stuff does, it, and that's why it's also so heinous. Is because people who are are genuinely victims are less likely to be believed too. I mean, it's it's 
multifaceted. It's both ways. Uh, but it's, it's so, it's so disgusting. It's so sick. And yeah, you see, you see these things in our culture again and again and again. And you just, you wonder, and it, it causes you to wonder like, what am I being lied about to all the time? Right. What are they, what are they telling me that are lies that I, and it, it causes you to just be skeptical, right? Because all, all these things end up being lies. It's hard to live your life so cynically and skeptically, but that's that's the world we're in today where everything is a lie. So you have to take everything you hear on the TV or in the news with a total grain of salt. Oh, yeah, completely. Uh, it seems like, too, pastorally, there's a lesson in here. Uh, we found this for years, but it's like you have, even in David's day, uh, under Saul's regime, you have all these men who are disaffected and a lot of young men in particular. It seems really important for pastors to be picking up on these notes, too, and saying things like, we do actually have to address the fact that women sin, women lie. Um, Eve sinned, uh, you know, Potiphar's wife uh, falsely accused Joseph. Like these things aren't new. Um, but what, what I think in our moment, like if you want to win the young men and they want to rally the troops and, and, and we'll get into this with your book as well with the Boniface option. If you want to build something that is better than trash world, you're going to need the, the strength of the young men to do that. And so it seems like if nothing else, uh, being brave pastorally as a leader, whatever capacity you're in, but especially pastors to say like, no, this is, this is really a problem. Young men, some of them are being destroyed by this type of woman. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, and in, in with, with women like this, but also even, even aside from, from this stuff, they're, they're being destroyed in, in every other way as well. They, they're being actively shut out from, from the mainstream economy. They're being, you know, made, lower, lower status, uh, just by, by virtue of being men. Uh, and so like, it's, it's, it's everywhere. There's this, this thing, especially young men feel this, right. They, they go to apply for the big corporate job and they don't have enough diversity, you know, credentials to be able to get it. And even, even if they're, you know, everything is impeccable. Like I, I tell a story about a, a young guy that, that I knew, where he was, you know, a double major, had a 4.0 in both majors and every extracurricular, every single thing. It, and he wanted to go to med school, takes the MCAT, gets a, um, you know, top, you know, 90th percentile score or higher, I think. And he goes to apply for all the like five or six med schools and he gets denied by all of them. But there's a, a gal in his pre-med class who was like a B student and it had an okay MCAT score she got into like five out of the six that he applied for. And it's like, well, wait a second. Why didn't he get into the, to the med school? Right. And, and, and then it also makes you think about like the doctors you do go see. Right? Where it's like, well, <laughs> wait, <laughs> like, uh, wait, uh, did you get at the med school on, you know, diversity, uh, your requirements or did you get it? Did you get it yeah. because you're actually competent? Right. Yeah. And, and, and it's like, and it isn't just the medical, field. it's everything. It's everywhere yeah. where it's like, no, well, that's like, we got too many guys, too many white guys. So we gotta, we gotta bump up the stats a little bit, but yeah, I mean, sure. That guy's uh, I mean, you see this with what's his name uh, in, in like Fort Worth, the mega church X 29 pastor Chandler, right. Where he's like, we got the Anglo eight here and, and the POC seven, we're going to go with the POC seven. <laughs> and like, he just, said it out loud. You know, it's like, usually they don't say it out loud. And, it, and and so you see this and you think that is so, so evil. Right. And, and every, every young guy sees this stuff and knows that you are a second class citizen in your own country and a despised person, uh, just by virtue of, of who you are. And, and yeah, so you're, you're going to have just a sea of disaffected young men, like any, any young guy who is aware of what is going on in the world and what is happening to them specifically, um, there there's going to be anger and angst. Like I think you probably saw the um, uh, the review of my book by Rod Rear. <laughs> yeah, I want to ask you about. Well, because it was so good. Yeah, it was. It was a great <laughs> review. I loved it. And all you had to say about me is like, yeah, this uh, it appears that that Andrew Isker is you know in his his early thirties and he's a young guy. I'm, I'm 37, actually, I'm almost 40 that I'm not that young anymore. And uh, he's a young guy and he's angry. And the book is all about hate, 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 disgust, filth, trash. Uh, this is an angry young man. And I'm thinking like, 
Okay, Rod. Well, not everybody gets to slurp oysters in Hungary all day long. <laughs> While abandoning their family. Yeah, yeah. Like, no, uh, the the young men should be angry, right? They should be angry about what's happening and what's what's been done to them. And you yeah, you you brought up the the situation of of Israel during the time of Saul. There are all of these disaffected young men, you know, some of them ne'er do well, some of them not such great guys, and uh others who who are. Yeah. And they all rally around David. Right, who is this fugitive? He's this guy who's on the fringes in the cave of Adullam, and they're like, "That's our guy, right? He's gonna he's gonna fix things for us, right? That's that's what happens." And and so I see, yeah, like you said, a similar set of circumstances where there are there's a a sea of disaffected young men who realize the rotten deal that they've gotten, and you know, honestly. Um, I, I think a reason why the book has has resonated with a lot of people, a lot of angry young men, is because they see it, and they feel it, they know it, and they like pastors don't talk about this stuff. Like they're they're the pastor at their big Eva church. It, all he has to say is how they need to man up, right? You just need to man up and work harder. You need to marry, you know, Jesus wants the rose. You need to go marry the single mom. And like that, that's what God wants you to do. Like that's, that's all they get told all day long is how defective they are. And never once has it said, uh, this world's really messed up and it's really messed up at your expense, particularly. And I understand what you're going through. I understand what's happening to you. And here, here's what you got to do to make it better. Like they, they don't get any message like that whatsoever. And, and so what, yeah, what I try to do in the book is say, listen, it's bad. Things are bad. You're not imagining it. You're not going crazy. It, it's as bad as you think it is. Now here's what you need to do to make it better for you personally and, and collectively for, for all of our people. Our sponsor, Private Family Banking Partners, is on a mission to help Christians live out the Dominion Mandate by making a stealth-like move away from the mainstream banks and into their own privatized banking system. This innovative system is designed to guarantee uninterrupted compound interest and tax-free growth without exposure to typical stock market risks. To join this growing community that is already building wealth into future generations and converting post-mill talk into post-mill action, contact Private Family Banking partner Chuck De Laterante at his email, chuck at privatefamilybanking.com. Again, that's chuck at privatefamilybanking.com. To set up an appointment and to receive a free copy of Chuck's new book, Protect Your Money Now, How to Build Multi-Generational Wealth Outside of Wall Street, and avoid the coming banking meltdown, go to the link in the show notes for more information. Do you desire to be shrewd financially for the sake of your family and future generations? Well, we know that a robust society depends on getting this right. Success in building and passing on personal wealth. Let's be mature, responsible leaders with the resources God expects us to turn a profit on to love our children and children's children well. Joe Garrisey with Backwards Planning Financial integrates investments, debt, insurance, tax strategies, and legacy planning in a holistic approach, coaching his clients to act wisely. You can do better than you received. You can affect your family trajectory and maximize your efforts to set up long-term fruitfulness. Joe starts with your values and goals, then provides impactful counsel to help you form and implement your financial plan. Click on the link in the description for Backwards Planning Financial and contact Joe today to get started. Yeah, I think that's really helpful and a good place to, um, I think, to unpack uh, for young guys that like, hey, there's real problems, but there's also a positive uh, strategy that we can lay out as well. So in the book, The Boniface Option, this is a strategy for Christian counteroffensive in a post-Christian nation. Kind of start with just why write this book? Obviously, young men and problems in society. What motivated you to start writing and and, and putting this together? I mean, some of it is, like I said, like nobody's talking about this stuff. I I mean, I shouldn't say nobody. Like you are and and a few others are, but very – I mean, we're just a tiny little small number of people in the – you know, much wider sea of, of uh, Christian pastors in, in, in our country. And so very few people are talking about any of this stuff. And so I'm like, well, I need, I need to say it. 
I need to, I need to put into words how I feel about these things and what, what exactly is wrong because a lot of people can feel it and they can, they can agree. Yeah, something's wrong, but they can't really articulate exactly where things are, are off. Like you see, I mean, everybody sees like the, the drag queen story hour and, 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 you know, kids being sexualized in schools and, and, and all of that and the you know, genital mutilation and all of those things. But like, so they're like, okay, that's bad. That's really wrong. And then it stops there. They're like, well, how did it get like this? Oh, this is crazy. And they don't ponder for a second. All right. It didn't just like appear out of nowhere, right? There's a long process to bring us to this point to create the conditions for this to happen. And, and so it's, it's laying this out. What, how did we get there? How did these things happen? Uh, what, what went wrong 50, 60, hundred years ago to bring us to this point? And how do we need to think about, you know, all of the supposed progress that has been made throughout the 20th century, right? To begin to roll these things back. And, and the, I mean, the first step is just admitting, no, this isn't good. Like the things that happened in, in our country, in our society have not been good. They have not been good for, for us and for, for our people and for our families. And so if you begin to reorient your thinking and other people do too, and you, you, then you can have a sea change uh, where you can at least have a, a, a vanguard of people who are beginning to fight against this stuff and not just fight against the drag queen story or and all the things that are the most obvious, but all the things that underlie all of that as well. Yeah. And one of the places you start that I found pretty helpful is with the economic emasculation. Uh, we talked a lot about on our shows with Kings Hall and other stuff that a, a lot of the problem is actually that the tyranny is being, you know, basically applied to everyone through like an HR department and economically people are being crushed. It was that people lost their jobs for not getting uh, the jab, you know, is that sort of thing. So I guess start unpacking for me, economic emasculation. This is one of the places you start. Uh, but, but why start here? I think a lot of people don't, and I think it was wise you did, but just why? I, I, cause I think that, that undergirds most of it is what ultimately drives what people do is their pocketbook, right? What, you know, why do you, why do you live the way you do? Well, I have to, in order to make money, right? I have to, in order to have a job, I have to, I have to live this way in order to survive. And, and so, right. Just peeling that onion back a little bit and, and asking, well, why do we live in this particular way that we do currently is, is what's necessary. You know, you know, and I know you guys talk about this. It's crazy to me that you can go for really all of human history everywhere where you have households, right? Where you have a, you have a household where there's a father and he's the head of his household and he's got his wife and all of his children. And he's the one that goes and works, you know, usually he's a farmer or some kind of laborer uh, related to agriculture and um, that's how he provides for his household. His wife uh, has kids and raises them and, and takes care of the, the home. And that was the arrangement, you know, the, the household economic arrangement for virtually all of human history until the 20th century. Right. It changed. And it, that's only changed very recently. And there's, there's a few reasons for that. I mean, one is you have now an industrialized economy where you don't require you know, brute strength in order to, to do labor, right. You can, you can do work with your brain and, uh, you don't need to have big giant muscles, uh, to do stuff. Right. Um, and so then it's like, well, we can have women work too. That'll be great. We'll double our economic production if we just add women to the workforce and then GDP goes way up and we all profit. Isn't that so wonderful? And meanwhile, the, the entire household suffers. All right. Meanwhile, children grow up without mothers in the traditional sense, and they're raised by strangers at daycare and then at, uh, you know, at public school and all, and the, the act, the, that economic activity, which it was, right. We, we monetize it now was produced uh, in the home before. And now it's, yeah, now it's outsourced to strangers and other people. And we've suffered societally because of that. Right, children are not raised by by their mothers at home, and that that ruins <laughs> ruins the society. And uh, as well, birth rates go way way down, right? Because uh, daycare is expensive; it costs money. And so, right, if and people do the economic calculation, well, my wife can make X number of dollars, 
And if we have, if we have eight kids and they all have to go to, you know, the, the younger one, all four or five of them have to go to daycare. Uh, well, we can't afford that. And so you don't have them, right? That's, that's what's happened in, in virtually every industrialized country on the planet. And uh, regardless of, you know, where they, what they are, what their, you know, ethnic makeup or culture or religion it is like, they, they all are like this, even, even Iran, and they have like they have a below re- replacement level birth rates, and it's supposed to be this austere Muslim country that that oppresses women. And so, like that's that's a big part of it. And so, you know, people maybe would ask me like, "Are you saying we shouldn't have an industrial economy that we should all go be Amish and and churn butter all day and, and things like that?" And it's like, well, no. But I think you can you can have the industrial production and retain a traditional society of having households, but it requires. It requires everyone implicitly understanding that that's a priority, and that's the dif- the difficulty there, right? People people don't prioritize those things. They they would much rather have a whole bunch of money and and to be able to go on vacations and and buy expensive things and have a bigger bigger house. And the problem now that we're running into is instead of having just extra money and money you're able to put away into savings and retirement and everything else. Now you need that second income just to survive, right? Just to be able to afford a home, right? You look at the, like the median house price in the United States is well over $400,000. And it's like a single family income is not going to be able to pay for that for most people. Like you're, you're, you're not making 200K, uh, but maybe you and your wife are, and you can afford a nice house in the suburbs now. That's where things are at, where the, the income level is is either stagnating or declining relative to inflation. And it's not like they're going to come up with some solution to like stop spending money and printing money. The rubber is meeting the road where this system it isn't going to work anymore. And, and people see this, like especially young people, they see this, like, how am I ever going to be able to afford a home? Uh, I'm going I'm to have to make $300,000 a year in order to right? In order to have a family and have, if I want to have six or seven kids, uh, I need to make that much money. And, you know, like, like the boomer will be like, well, then go ahead and make it. You know, the Dave Ramsey will we'll just eat rice and beans. And, and <laughs> it's like, no, like you can't, you, you, you can't put your strap your way out of this, this, you know, macroeconomic situation. Well, it's crazy too. Cause I know there was a guy uh, we were talking to recently and this was like in the 80s. So he's an older guy, but he was, I think he said he was working for like UPS in the 80s, just driving a truck. And he said, yeah, in like 1983, he said, I bought a house and the house was $30,000 less than my annual salary. And so you put that together and you're like, you look at that generation and you're like, wait a minute. But we had 20% interest rates. No, no. It's like, yeah, for like a year uh, yeah. or like two years. And then it went back down, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People, people have no idea. Yeah. You're right. It's like, you have to recognize like these economic realities. Um, you have to realize what people are up against. Families have to start strategizing. And and even there was a time where I, I was probably more critical. This is probably 10 years ago or something, but I was like more Dave Ramsey. It's like, well, people need to stop living so lavishly. Well, you know, some of that is obviously true. Obviously, you can always outspend your budget. But then when you are being frugal and you're trying to raise a family and you realize like, you know, we're, here in Ogden, it's like an average price house would be between five and $650,000 average in the suburbs. And you're like, wait a minute. Like, even if you make six figures, you're like, that's still like many, many years worth of all of your annual salary. So it's like assuming you don't like have living expenses or something. So yeah, I mean, people are going to have this uh, problem. And then uh, the other thing that that I think is helpful in in the second part of the book, you talk about, you know, masculine economics. So this is, again, this is what's helpful. Recognizing trash world now saying like, okay, let's do something about this. I, I know you guys, like with Gab, you talked a lot about parallel economy. What is the positive vision here uh, for guys in terms of like, what do you do about this? I mean, some of it is some of it's a lot of it is outside of your own hands, right? You 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 aren't going to be able to change your macroeconomic situation that you're in uh, single handedly, but you have to you have to like you said strategize in the front end, like and, and recognize the reality where you're yeah if you're 23 years old and and you have a girlfriend you want to get married and think about all right here's the vision that I want to have I want to I want to work I want you to stay home with the kids. Here's what housing costs. 
here's the amount of money I need to make. And then, you know, build up from there and, and recognize that, you know, you might, you might have to live a life of relative poverty for the first 10 or, or 15 years of, of, of your life, which is extremely difficult. Like you have to go in with your eyes open and understand that, that life for you is very difficult right now. And no one is, is making it easier. No one has any, any, any clear designs to make it any easier. And you, you have to a recognize that and then B build things out from there and, and figure that out. Like maybe, maybe it means like having a, having a side business and, and building, you know, building your own business that you can grow and have the kind of income that you want. It might mean, you know, it, it might mean all sorts of things. People are having, are being forced to get creative now. It, it might mean living with your parents for a while until you do get married and just saving up money. Uh, it might, it might mean having, yeah, having to live in poverty if you want to have a family. It's not the, it's not the option that, uh, you know, anyone wants to hear, uh, but you, you might have to. My wife and I, that's what we did, you know? <laughs> yeah, I haven't even thought about that, but my wife and I, it was like, I think for the first seven years of marriage, like we were making like under $25,000 a year. And uh, it's like, you can do it. It's not good. It's not pretty. But I also think one of the things looking forward, as we've said with our kids, is like, we are going to help you. Like, this is not a project that can be overcome with like, if you have multi-generational help and if parents, you know, listen to this, it's like you should be plotting how to help your kids. Maybe, you know, we even said like, we're going to buy a little more house now so that like, even if they get married, like there's space where the kids could live. It wouldn't be the best thing in the whole world, you know, admittedly, but it's like you could get your feet underneath you and save some money and, 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 you know, have a, at least a good trajectory to start. Yeah. Yeah. And you see this with like prior generations where, I mean, I remember there was the, and I, I think he was trolling, but it was like the, like Jesse Kelly is tweet where I'm, I, when my kid turns 18, I'm, I'm going to kick him out of the house and have him live on his own, you know, and like, I'm done now you go do your own thing uh, go be an RV salesman or whatever. Right. And, uh, and, and it's like, it was, it was, it was so atrocious, you know, but that's like the, the mindset that the previous generations have had where it's like, well, nobody helped me. Nobody helped me. And I'm like, well, okay, but how do you end that generational cycle of nobody helping? They should have helped you. That's the thing. They should have, and they didn't, but you still should help your kids, right? You should do this instead of, instead of thinking, oh, I can't wait to have my nice retirement where I can go play, you know, go, go play pickleball all day. You know, it's, it's like, well, maybe you need to stay where you are. And, and instead of buying a second home, you know, you help your, your kid find them like that. Some of it is, is trying to do as much intergenerational stuff as possible. And, and that might, that like that generation too, like they are, uh, they are what they are and it's difficult to change their entire mindset. But I mean, some of it too is like, I have, I have kids and I, I've thought the same thing that you do too. It's like, we, we have to be ready to be able to help them out when they're, when they're older. I mean, some of it is even like, man, like I see how much people spend on weddings. They spend like 20 K on weddings. And it's like, you could do this. You, yeah, you could do this for a thousand dollars and just give them that cash to buy a home and they're going to need it. Right. Why, why are you, why are you, why are you spending three grand on a dress that you're going to wear once? That's insane. Right. That's nuts. Yeah. That's, that's, that's banana. That's like, okay. But I mean, maybe if you're, you're millionaires, okay, you can do whatever you want. But like, if you are a normal person, don't do that. Don't, that's insane. Don't do that. Um, so things like that, like you, you have to, you have to begin to, to deal with reality as it is and not how you, you wish it would be. And so, yeah, in current year and trash world, uh, starting a family is difficult. And I think young people recognize this, but it's not impossible, right? It's not impossible. And you could find help. I mean, especially if you, you know, have a good church where people will help you and, and recognize the, the place that you're at. Um, and, and especially in uh, with like careers and, and business and things like that, like having a, a church with a broad network of people, having, you know, knowing people that own businesses that you could go work for, uh, that is, that is incredibly important. It isn't, oh, finding a nice church is, is good. Like, you know, you need, you need to know people and they need to know you and know that like, hey, this young guy might be a good employee and you can, you can have, like, that's how people get careers is because of who they know. It's, it's, it's like the, the cliche, cliche of cliches is, you know, it's who, you know, but it, it really is. And so developing networks of people and, and th- those networks 
are are growing and, and building. Like I I know you've talked to you know my friends in in Dallas uh, with new founding, like being connected to them. Like those are guys that are building uh, parallel institutions as well. Like they they want businesses for you know conservative Christian America. And ha- having that network, and it's incredibly difficult because of like civil rights laws and things like that, where you can't be like, we're only hiring Christian people. Like you're, you're not allowed to do that, but you are able to, you know, uh, have your network, right? That That's, that's allowed still. It's not a, totally illegal yet. And so they, they're building things like that. And, and so I think that's how you counter some of the macro level uh, problems is, is getting connected to the right people that are building the right things. And it, and it can be done. Yeah, that's really helpful. Uh, Andrew, one of the other things I want to ask you uh, about the book uh, is just overall, how has it been received? Curious on sales. And then uh, I'm going to ask you more about Rod Dreher, your biggest fan. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it's been received really well. We've sold, um, I think we're uh, over 5,000 copies. I haven't, I haven't asked uh, Torba yet uh, where, where we're at. I haven't asked him in a while. But I think we're we're uh, if if we haven't crossed that threshold yet, we we should be very soon, and and that is you know that's doing really well for a book. Um, I mean, you're in publishing, you know how few books sell. Like the average book is like I think it sells less than a hundred, and from like an actual publisher. Uh, and so you know uh, rather than 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 smaller print uh, groups, and even from you know you know publishing companies like like yours or, or the one I'm with with Gab Press. Right, you're talking like Random House. Like the average one sells like a hundred, and and so if you sell into the thousands, that's that's a huge, a huge hit. And so yeah, it's it's done extremely well. And I think a lot of the, you know, you have the initial marketing and everything, but after that, it continues to sell. And I th- and I think it's because it's actually good. <laughs> you know, it's always hard because it's like, oh, sell my or buy my book, buy my book, and you're you're gonna love it, and a bunch of people will. But then when they actually read it and they're like, no, this is good. This is excellent. Like I have, like people are, I see people quoting it all the time and, and sharing, you know, ideas from it. And, you know, people will message me and email me and say, say how much they got out of it. And so like that, those kind of things, the reaction to it is, is way more meaningful, I think, than, than like looking at the sales stats. Cause it's like anybody, you know, if you market something well enough, you could sell, you know, ice cream to Eskimos. But if if it's actually a quality thing that people are getting something out of, right? Then you know, right? Then you know I, I'm making an impact. I'm doing I'm I'm doing something that's meaningful. All the work I did on this was worth it because it's it's helping people. It's helping put into words really how a lot of people are feeling, and and so yeah, the overall the reaction to it has been has been great. I mean, I know there there are some people that are critical of it. I mean, it's funny because I'll have all friends they'll share it with people. And they're like, yeah, my, you know, my friend read part of it and thought this is nuts. Like things are not that bad, right? Your life is good, right? Your life, you, you, you got a good you know, job and, and all this kind of stuff. Things are not that bad. And it's like, how can you, how can you say it's not that bad when you look at the, like, just even like the sociological statistics, like the number, uh, I've brought this up before in, in other places, but like the number of out of wedlock births in America is like 40%. We're nearing one, one of every two kids is born to a single mom, right? That's not good. And it's like, yeah, that does have an effect on you. Even if your kids are born to a married mom and dad, like that has an effect on your entire society. Um, much less all the other, you know, lagging indicators, like um, children getting their genitals cut off, right? That like all of these things, like, what do you mean? It's not bad. It is bad. Uh, are you crazy? And so like that, that, that always, but it, it, a lot of that is like, there are so many people that are extremely comfortable in the, in their circumstances. And, but the number of people that are extremely comfortable gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, and, and so I, I'm always like, ah, yeah, those people, like they'll get it but it'll probably be too late once they get it. But uh, no, the, the reaction though, as overall has been, has been really good. Like I haven't, you know, I haven't had any haters other than Rod Rear because, and, and I think he, he found the book because of the title, you know, cause it's a riff on, on his book, but uh, I haven't, you know, like big Eva hasn't attacked me or any, or any of like the G3 people. They haven't, they haven't, I, I hope they do. I would love it if they did. But uh, they haven't they haven't gone that far yet. You know, I guess I need to sell ten thousand before they deem me worthy to to be attacked. But you know, yeah, yeah, if, yeah, Dreer, man, like that. Uh, 
that whole thing is 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 just comical to me. If if yeah, if we're laughing about it, but if anyone hasn't read it, you definitely need to read his <laughs> review of it because it's like and it was a long review, and he was just unhinged about it all. He didn't. His was on, uh, it was on American conservative, wasn't it? No, no, he doesn't write for them anymore. It was, um, on his Substack. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. That's right. Yeah. And it was, it was like three or 4,000 words long and it's only like a 35,000 word book. And so like, <laughs> it's longer <laughs> than the book. <laughs> and I was like, oh, how long is this going to go, man? <laughs> but yeah, he, he did not, he didn't get it. He didn't get that we're living in trash world. And I think it's easy for him to not get that things are bad because he has a very comfortable life. You know, he is this international man that uh, that gets to enjoy all sorts of comforts. And he doesn't see what life is like for regular ordinary people. And, or or he does and he's just repressing it. I think that's probably more likely as well. But uh, but besides him, there haven't been too many negative reviews. I mean, there there are the random one star ones by people that have never read it that that call me like a Nazi and a fascist and a homophobe <laughs> and things like that. But, uh, I don't know. There was a Ukraine. I just run in the middle. Yeah, there's. I mean, there's a Ukraine flag on the cover, so that probably sets off uh, certain people as well. But uh, that that'll happen. Well, I was gonna say. Looking at the cover, so you guys kind of like covered all the bases here. You've got abortion as a human rights sign. You've got I love Fauci. You've got a bearded dude with purple wig and tube top. Uh, you got a Ukraine flag, as, as you mentioned. Uh, I, I particularly like the woman with the lonely fans. <laughs> yeah, t- yeah. Tank so we had top to, on. We had to be careful with trademark uh, yes. infringement there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So you're going after all the idols, uh, which you just love to see it. Um, one of the idols that you guys have gone after, I know you and CJ had a, a pretty good episode recently that I was listening to on uh, demographic replacement. And uh, so I want to ask you about this. This is kind of one of the, I guess, hot button issues. It's 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 really weird to me uh, because, you know, you can, you can watch videos of this. You can hear Joe Biden talk about it. Bill Clinton talked about it for a long time. That, you know, white people, if you're white in America, you're being replaced and you should applaud. Uh, the world is applauding. This is a good thing. Um, so they just actually come out and say that this is happening. Uh, but what's so interesting to me about this is despite the fact that they're saying this is what we are aiming at. You watch the border. Uh, you watch people flooding into the country. Um, <laughs> we had Kevin Sorbo on here, Mr. Hercules. And he was even saying he's like. Also a Minnesotan, by the way. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, that's why he's so yeah. cool. <laughs> that's right. Uh, <laughs> but he was saying, you know, uh, it's like 5 x you know, I think there was like a million people during Trump came in through immigration. You know, Biden is like five plus million now, whatever. Uh, that's so, the lowball number. It might be closer to 10. Yeah. yeah I mean, th- this is like what people are willing to say and is probably yeah. incorrect, you know? Yeah. yeah. So, so then you think about this and you're like, okay, so clearly happening. Um, you live near Minneapolis. I mean, you've been there, obviously. Yeah, I have a few times. Little Somalia. And you go to places like this and you're like, okay, there's something clearly happening. But when you talk about these things, particularly the evangelical establishment is furious. Like how could you, Andrew, be a conspiracy theorist who believes in demographic replacement? Ah, because it's happening. Like they, it's a clear agenda, right? Like they, and they, yeah, you see this, like they, they talk, there was a video uh, from Joe Biden this week where he's saying like, yeah, you know, white people are going to be a minority, but we're going to still treat you okay. Don't worry about it. It's like, uh, you know, you know what? <laughs> what are you, we're gonna, treat, you're gonna be a minority, but it's all right. Don't worry. Uh, we got worked you. out for South Africa. It'll be. You fine. got nothing to worry about. <laughs> and, it, and it's like that is that's nuts, man. And 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 so like you're, you're but you're yeah you're not allowed to talk about it. You know if you I, I think I remember you know Owen Strayan was on one of his unhinged rants about Stephen Wolf a few months ago. And uh, this is back when he he followed me at one at one point. On oh, did you get unfollowed? I had blocked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, yeah, I guess I guess he doesn't like me anymore. What a um, rabble rouser you are! Uh, I know. And and so yeah, it, it uh, and he he was talking about like demographic replacement or the great replacement. It's a conspiracy theory, and anyone who believes it is a kinist and is a racist and a Nazi. You know, I, I, I don't know, he deletes all his tweets so I, and I can't find him because I'm blocked, right? So I, I can't find the verbatim what he said, but it's ba- along those lines, right? And, and it, like, that's the party line that they hold to, both the big Eva and the mid Eva, you know, guys. And, and it's like, 
how can you say such things when they brag about it all day long everywhere? That this is the design, this is the plan, and and not just in the United States, but in you know I I, I focus on you know with this stuff with with Europe as well, like France and Germany, UK. This is the active design for those places as well. They want to bring in tens of millions of of Africans and Arabs uh, to replace the population because the population they're not having children and they're not having children for the same reason we talked about all all the, before. And and the priority of the regime is not to have more kids. Like they could make it easy to have kids. They could do it like Hungary. You know, Rodrigo's favorite country, uh, they could do what Hungary does and says, okay, after you have four kids, a married couple, you don't have to pay taxes anymore. No and more like, income tax for life. Yeah. And it's like, boy, I would love that. That would be great. I've got five kids, right? I would, I would love to not, I'd love if my total deduction on all of them was a hundred percent. That'd be great. <laughs> um, and a lot more people would be like, all right, honey, you're, you're, uh, or if you do go to work, <laughs> right, you're going to work from home and take care of all the kids and, uh, we're going to have Ted, right. You know, like that's what you do to, to boost the, the birth rate. They don't want to do that. They'd say, we want to bring in all of these foreign people. And of course what that does, and this is, you know, we discussed this with, uh, a Mike, Michael Anton article, uh, where he describes just how, how bizarre this is historically that you've, you traditionally, if you had, um, immigration, and this is the way it was in the United States, you would prioritize uh, assimilation, right? You would prioritize bringing in people that could become your people, right? Where they could adopt your language and traditions and, and your way of life and make that as seamless as possible. And everyone understood that, all right, who, who, what kind of people is this easier to do with? They're like, well, it's easier for Western Europeans to come to America and do this, right? That, those are the people who immigrated throughout the 19th century until the late 19th century. And then it was Eastern Europe and Southern Europe. And like, th- that was the majority of the immigrants. Of course, you had in the West Coast, you had Chinese, but that's what the priority was, was assimilation. And in the, 20th, in the mid, mid 20th century, all of a sudden assimilation is evil. That's bad. We want to prioritize everyone retaining their ethnic heritage and, and actually, you know, American history and culture, this is really the most racist evil country on earth. And so you should actually hate it and really identify yourself as a person from wherever you came from and never become American. Uh, and that's, that's insane, right? If you want to have a stable, cohesive, well-ordered society, you want the people to, to become like, if, if, if you and I said, all right, we're done with America, we're going to move to Japan and for some reason, the Japanese said, we want you to live here and be citizens, which they don't. <laughs> they, only want, they only want Japanese people in Japan. Crazy, right? Uh, and I have thought they, about moving to Hungary. I don't know what that would take. But. <laughs> I mean, I really like sushi. <laughs> you wouldn't be you know, considered Japanese uh, for what, like five to ten generations until your children intermarried with the people there and like – <laughs> you, you, they literally generation over generation become more and more Japanese. Like that's, that's how assimilation was done. Right. And you see this with all sorts of other countries, right? You, you become a, a person from that country and your, your posterity does, right? That's, that's how assimilation is done. here. That's, that doesn't happen, right? We, we bring in, you know, Anton, you know, estimates like a hundred million people in the you know, 20th century or the second half of the 20th century, hundred million immigrants, and all of them are the priority is not assimilation, but retaining their their cultural heritage and and having this multicultural society. Well, all that is is a recipe for factionalism and and political disorder. And what do we have now? Right, that's precisely what we have. And you have you you basically have these these war war among these various different ethnic groups where they don't consider some, themselves first and foremost American. They consider themselves POCs or, or Hispanic or whatever. And it, and that's when like the boomer, the boomer con will say, well, identity politics is bad. You should, you should not do it. And it's like, that's, that's not how human beings operate. Like they're going to retain the identity unless you force them to become Americans, <laughs> right? That's the only way. And uh, you're not allowed to do that. So what do you, what do you do? And so, yeah, it's, it's crazy. Like, so even the stuff that we talked about, like this would get us kicked out of, you know, for the last 10 minutes, you know, get us kicked out of uh, every conservative group and every, you know, most of evangelicalism, they would think you're some kind of wignat, you know, crazy. And it's like, I'm not, 
I just said, like, here's how you can make foreign people become American. <laughs> like, I'm laying out the case of how you can have immigration and make it work. That doesn't sound like, you know, white nationalism. It's what America did in the past. And we, we don't do it any longer. And it's it's a recipe for disaster. And so if you bring in, especially even in an even greater rate, you bring in 50 million foreign people. And they aren't just from Hispanic countries. There are people flooding in from Africa, right? So somehow they get from Africa to... Um, south of the U.S. border, and that's how they get it. Like millions of people, and and yeah, you, like you see, you bring up Minnesota. Yeah, you see this when you go to Minneapolis that there are something around a hundred thousand Somalis, and and most of them in the fifth congressional district in in Minneapolis. Why we have Ilhan Omar, um, and we're always going to have a Somali Congress person, uh, you know, indefinitely <laughs> as long as this is the case because. They they vote along ethnic lines, right? Maybe the Republicans they, they tried this. They tried to have a Republican Somali candidate uh, to oppose her. They got like twelve percent of the vote or something. <laughs> Very effective. Yeah, yeah. The, the Minnesota GOP is is like the GOP everywhere else. But I mean, and you see this. But even even in Minnesota here, there was this this horrific story um, earlier this week about a bunch of illegal immigrants that abducted a girl and gang raped her, like an eleven year old girl. And it's like, this is in Bemidji, Minnesota, a town, you know, not much bigger than my tiny little town. That's in outstate Minnesota. And this is, I mean, you're talking about as far from the Southern border as you can get. Um, I mean, they're, they're not, you could walk to Canada from there and, and it's like, it's, it's everywhere. Like this is by design. What they want to be happening in our, in our country is, is this destruction. I, I look at this stuff, man, like, and I, even in my own town in, in, uh, uh, when I was in seventh grade, I had a a classmate in this town. It's a town nine thousand. I had a classmate um, when I was twelve years old who was uh, uh, raped and murdered by an illegal immigrant in this town. And it would have been it would have been huge national news, but it literally happened the same day as Columbine in in nineteen ninety eight. You know, this stuff like hits close to home. That's probably why like I have some of the views I have now because like I I've seen it. I see that this is not good. That not having a secure border is is reaping destruction and crime. So, like you know, when you see Trump come down the escalator and he says, you know, Mexico is bringing drugs and rapists and murderers, and it's like everyone around here was like, yes, finally, someone says it, finally, finally, and that's that's why he got all the votes that he got, and why he's so popular because he he says these things, and um, you're not allowed to say it. I remember the freakout from Big Eva when he's saying this. Oh, he's a racist. He's a racist for saying for saying things that are obviously true. It uh, yeah, it turns me into a bad boy. Like I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not uh, well thought of by a lot of people because I'll I will agree with him that no, this is a, a problem that has to be stopped. And you're you're not going to get brownie points from the left um, if you if you talk about these things um, in clear obvious language. Red meat is a staple of a healthy, protein-packed diet, but not all meat is created equal. That's why I buy my meat from Salt and Strings Butchery. Salt and Strings is owned and operated by my friends, Quinn and Samantha Bible, and the meat they offer is raised, harvested, and processed exclusively in Southern Illinois. It's cut and packaged by my friends, Quinn and Anthony, and not only is it the best meat I've ever had, well, all their meat is sourced from local farms that share our Christian values. Salt and Strings is now offering a beef and hog box that can be shipped directly to your door. The 15-pound beef box features 100% black Angus beef and includes ribeyes, T-bones, sirloin, chakros, fajita meats, and ground beef. You can order your beef box today for just $259. They will send it directly to your door. The hog box is $239 and features premium Duroc pork, including eight thick pork chops, one of my all-time favorites, pork steaks, cured and sliced bacon, ground pork, bratwurst, and breakfast sausage links. You can place your order today at saltandstrings.com or use the link in the show notes. And also be sure to follow Salt and Strings on Instagram. We'll also include the link in the show notes. Yeah, it's so interesting, too, because even evangelical leaders, the thinking on immigration is so sloppy. Because even when you think about something like the church, you know, the Gentiles come into the church through the proclamation of the gospel and evangelism. But there's the requirement of repentance, and and, and it's very clear in the New Testament. It's like you have to completely renounce your old way of life. 
you know, you renounce who you were so that with Paul, you could say such were some of you. So you don't live like the world anymore. You don't live like a a sinful Gentile anymore. Uh, So even then it's like, there's a whole citizenship, if you will, in coming into the ecclesiastical body, which is the church. So it's like, but then when we talk about evangelism and immigration and how they just work so seamlessly together and they're like, yeah, but you're not actually requiring anybody to become anything different than what they already are. And vice versa, if we said, like, if you said, would that be good hospitality for me to go to, even if it was hungry, we go to hungry and it's like, I refuse to speak your language. I'm not eating your dishes. I'm not participating in your culture. They'd be like, well, I mean, there's the door. But but let me vote in your elections and let me tell yes. you how to live. It, it's totally backwards and it it is, and it makes absolutely no sense. And And you can't, I don't know, for some of the people, like you can't even begin to describe the problem. Like they refuse to admit that there's a problem, right? It doesn't matter how many, how much crime there is. It doesn't matter how much disorder there is. It doesn't matter how much our, our politics uh, become what they are. Like you see, like the example of like the state of California was, it was the Florida of America. It was what Florida is now um, for all of America throughout the 20th century. I mean, this is, this is where Richard Nixon came from and Ronald Reagan came from. This is the most conservative state in the country. And because of immigration, right, legal immigration, not just illegal, it, they turned it into the worst state in the country, the, the, this like leftist hellhole, right, where there's just drugs and crime and, and, and tra- little trash everywhere, you know, not where CJ lives, but uh, everywhere else. <laughs> and it's, it's so bad. And it's like, oh, no, that, that, that doesn't happen. That, that's not real. It wasn't immigration. It was just they all decided to become leftists one day. Like no, that's not that's not what happened. They they demographically replaced the population in that state, and now it is it is what it is, and that's that is the paradigm for the entire country. That's what they want all of America to be is like California, and and it's like un- unless people are willing to admit things and be called really nasty, horrible, career-ending names, nothing is going to change. It takes it takes people with backbone to stand up and say, no, I, I would like my country to remain what it was when I was born. I would, I would like it to be a nice place to live. I want it to be a, a safe, peaceful, prosperous country for my family. And that doesn't mean allowing in a hundred million third world people, right? It cannot. It's bad. And so you know, I, I, I think there has to be major change within evangelicalism. And I, I think it's starting to happen. Like the younger generation of leaders is beginning to tell the truth about these things and is not cowed by just the, you know, leftist slurs that get thrown out. Right. It's, it's. Do you think Andrew, that like part of the reason there's such a strong response against something like Christian nationalism is actually because it's catching on with a lot of these young people? Yes. It's funny because they're like, Oh, it's not a real thing. It's going to die off. It's no big deal. And, and uh, it's just like the emergent church, you know, and it's like, then why are you so scared of it? Right. Why are you, why are you scared of all these young guys listening to people like me? Right. Why are you, why are you so afraid if it's not a big deal? Well, then you should just stop talking about it. It'll go away anyway. Right. Uh, but no, it is like, it is, it is a huge deal. And, it, and I think you're right. It's because young people see the problems that are confronting them and no one else is telling them the truth about it. No one else is saying anything that makes any sense. And these guys over here are, and what I'm told they're really scary, but everything they, they say is actually pretty rational and, and they're not, they're not crazy people. They're, they're normal. They look normal and I'm going to listen to them, right? That's, that's what they're afraid of, right? They're afraid because the standard conservative uh, mantras are dying. Like you, you see this this week with the, you know, the speaker of the house fight, right? They like all the, all the Republicans thought that, We'll just keep doing business as usual and we'll get away with it and nobody's going to care. And you see their, the voting base is totally with Matt Gates. Like, oh, we're going to primary him. And it's like, everyone loves him. <laughs> How do you think you're going to primary that guy? Uh, he's the only person that's holding anybody accountable in Washington, D.C. to keep their promises. And meanwhile, and they, they, they see the things happening on the border. And, and just like today, like the Biden administration is like, ah, just kidding. We're actually going to build the wall now. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Like, yeah, Isn't that weird. amazing how that happens? Yeah. Crazy. No, like they're, they're forced to, they're, they're forced to address these things because the 
people uh, want something done. And, and you see that with like on the lady, right? The regular people in churches, right? They see the destruction that is happening to their country. And then they hear in the pulpit, well, we lose down here and you just need to, we just need to preach the gospel more and that'll fix everything. We need and, to allow for a uh, gay mirage yeah. and children, no. Andy Stanley. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Like that's the, that, so those are your two options are like full on apostasy, like Andy Stanley, or just burying your head in the sand and accepting defeat. And so regular people hear that and they're like, I don't want either of those. I'm going to go to the people that at least are willing to fight and have clear, compelling reasons for that. You know, you read, uh, you read Stephen Wolf's book, read my book. And it's like, this makes a lot of sense. And it's rooted in, in Christian tradition. It's rooted in, in biblical theology. It isn't just something that was made up five minutes ago. This is something that Christians have believed for centuries. And all the thing that's made up five minutes ago is this post-war liberal consensus. After, you know, after World War II, it's like, oh, well, we're just, a, we're just an economic zone here in America. Anyone who wants to – there's seven, eight billion people on the planet. If you want to you know, be part of our economic zone, you can if you want. You just got to get on our magic dirt. And now you're an American. <laughs> um, well, people are fed up with that. They don't want that. That's not, a, that's not an answer to the, the problems that, that face them. And so they want, they want answers from somebody else. And so that's why it's this huge threat is <laughs> to them. And it's not going away, right? Because the political circumstances are not changing overnight. Like they're not, we're not going to dial things back to like, you know, 2003. Uh, that's not happening. They're, people are going to continue to go to where they can find answers. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think it's interesting, as you said, politically, there's kind of this twofold thing. I think a lot of Christians are realizing that we have basically no thick uh, political theology and the church hasn't had it. This is kind of what I find. I found somewhat comical, even as like Stephen Wolf has interacted with like James White, James White's, you know, coming at it. Like, I can't believe you have this really weird position. And Stephen's like, it's literally existed for thousands of years. <laughs> like this is not new at all. I mean, you can disagree with it, but really you have the novel position. You have the new position in the last hundred years. So I think, I think that's part of it too, is look from the time you and I were like seminary and then, you know, pastoring and doing all that sort of stuff. Like people were reporting on this then that there was a return to like confessionalism and orthodoxy and people wanted the historic church. They were tired of grandpa, grandma, mama, dad. What They were tired of the boomer big box church that basically sucked and was shallow. And so I think, I only think that trend is going to increase as people are saying, no, I want, actually I can read political theology from Samuel Rutherford and Lex Rax or somebody else. And, and I find that it's actually thick and it's robust. And our, our great grandfathers were not idiots. Like the reason we have a great country, if we have anything left of one today is because of them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they're the, the stuff that they wrote, like you said, it's thick. There's something to chew on. There's something, there's a lot there. It isn't just like, Oh, we believe in democracy and and universal suffrage and civil rights and yada yada. Like, no, it's and and, and, it, and all of that is just out of whole cloth. It's like, well, where in where in Christian theology or the Bible do you get that from? Right, where where is this coming from? It's like, well, that's just what we believe because pluralism is good, and and like there's there's no there there, and people get that they see there's there's just nothing to grab hold of, whereas then you can go back into hundreds and thousands of years of Christian tradition as it related to the church and the state and political power and so forth. And there's so much there and it is so rich. And it's, it's the same thing with, with, with church generally, where as you know, you, we've, you, I know you've talked about this before, like uh, on Aaron Wren's, you know, three world paradigm, you know, positive world, negative world, or, uh, neutral world, negative world. And like, we're, we're so obviously in negative world and this, the whole paradigm of the big box evangelical church and very shallow theology and non-existent political theology or any idea of how to engage it for Christians to think about politics is um, now we're confronted with negative world. You have to. You, you, that's not an optional thing. That's not just a convenience. Like, oh, you're a political theology nerd. That's cool. That's what you – I like to – I like to watch football, you know, like, no, uh, this is, this is a necessity. You have to do it. You have to answer these questions and think about these questions deeply. And, um, that's the direction it's going to go, right. It's going to be, 
full on apostasy, like Andy, Andy Stanley, like, oh yeah, if the, the, the gay couple and their kids come to church, we want it to be a warm, affirming, welcoming place. Well, congratulations, congratulations. You're in the ELCA now, um, you know, like you're in, you're in the, in an apostate world. Like that's how you've answered that question. Also um, not a new position. That's no, it's, it's been around for a long time, Andy, you're late to the yeah. party. Yeah. You, you've joined, you, you made it clear where you're going. And so people are not going to go that direction. And so the only direction left is going to the people who have answers to these questions about negative world and what we do from here, right? That that's where they're going to go. I mean, that, and that's, you know, largely I bring this up in the, in my book is um, we're in negative world. You need to personally adapt yourself to negative world. You need to live like you're in negative world and begin to um, make yourself able to fight. And that includes, not just being an individual, but having a community, having a brotherhood, right? Having a tribe of, of men around you that, that will protect you and build you up, lift you up, who, who are your brothers, right? Uh, in real life, not just on the internet. And um, that is absolutely crucial to have, to just, just stay sane, right? Things are so nuts and you feel like you feel it all day long. And so to have other guys who also see the things you do and, you know, reinforce the fact that you're not going nuts. The world is so important. Um, and then you can, you can begin to build, you can be, build churches, you can build institutions, you can build businesses, you can build things that will matter and will sustain and only grow stronger when they face opposition, right? That's, that's part of it is building anti-fragile things that the more opposition they face, the stronger they get like, you know, like Roman concrete that that's, you know, I, I think the way things are going to go, and that's the only direction we can go. And, and it's like, no, we just, we lose down. Like that doesn't, that nobody wants to hear that, right? Nobody wants to hear, oh, we're just, we're doomed to lose. And Christians have always suffered. And it's like, well, there's like 1500 years of Christendom where they built things and they built <laughs> glorious things. Yeah. And, and we're supposed to forget, well, those were all Roman Catholics. So that doesn't matter. You know, that was <laughs> like, that's, that's really the only thing they have to say. It's like, no, that, that didn't, that didn't count. And it's like, no, they were actually persecuting the tiny little fragment of Christians that actually existed. That's it's the only thing they have to say. It's, it's or, bizarre. Or they try to convince us how bad that all actually was. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the crusades, those were terrible. And oh, yeah. the world is, yeah. was so much worse before the enlightenment. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's basically all. All that you have. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's so, it's, it's so incredibly pathetic. And, and, and I think people see that, like they see that, no, we can actually draw on the rich tradition of, of Christendom. We can, we can draw on the successes that the church has had over thousands of years, and we can yearn to build things that are that good and even better. Right. That kind of vision. Like if you present that vision to people, they, they say, oh, I want, I want, I want that. I want to do that. I mean, maybe it's not going to happen in my lifetime or my kid's lifetime or my grandkid's lifetime, but it's, we're going to build closer and closer to that. And that's something worth devoting my life to. And not just hanging out here till the rapture comes and we all get, you know, we've, you know, our clothes drop and we float off into space, you know? Um, no, no. <laughs> That's well, I think that's what's so huge, especially for uh, the younger generations. You want to win the hearts of the young people. And the left actually does this really well. You have to have a positive moral vision, right? You have to have a positive vision for what the world could be. Uh, Elon Musk has even said this. He's like, look, the we, if we want to save the future, we need to have kids. And then he's like, people need hope. Let's give people a hopeful future about a positive uh, world that we could build together. And so even if they're wrong, they're still positing some formula for hope and building. And of course, you know, as we've said at the King's Hall, it's like, well, let's think through that Christianly. Let's go look at the blueprints of something that was great in the past. And maybe we could build something like that as well in Christendom and uh, see it reconstructed for our children. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that that that's what we have to do. It is... Uh, capturing that vision, capturing a vision of of what the church can be and what uh, a Christian nation can be and what it looks like, and it and it and it isn't utopian. It isn't as though every problem disappears. It's that we can rebuild the kind of world where there actually were answers to the problems we face, <laughs> yeah. rather than just you know throwing our hands up and giving up. 
And so that, that you can't fight something with nothing. And right now what, what the evangelical church has is nothing. We have, we have nothing to fight with. And so a compelling vision of Christendom of something to build toward, toward the future is, is what's going to draw people in. It is, it's the only thing, right. Other than despair, like that's all they have to sell it despair. Like things are going to be bad. We lose down here. And, and that, that, that doesn't help anyone, right. It only makes things, it only makes things way worse. If, if you're just sitting there and you're thinking, well, I better collect guns and ammo and just uh, try to survive the tribulation. Like, no, no, it's a terrible way to live. And, and especially young people who have their whole lives ahead of them, right. Um, they, they are thinking, all right, this crazy world that I'm in, what am I going to do? Um, I want to go listen to the people that have something to say about how we can make it better, right? How, what I can personally do to make life better for me and my family and my whole country. I think that's ultimately who wins, right? Who can cast the vision, who can show themselves as future builders. Well, Andrew has been phenomenal having you on the podcast I uh, definitely want to recommend that everybody checks out if we get some focus here, maybe <laughs> there we are uh, on the Boniface option. Uh, you can pick this up, uh, I believe on Amazon. That's where I got my copy and uh, definitely uh, encourage people to read that. They can follow along with your work at Boniface option. We'll include links for that uh, for Twitter and Gab as well for people to follow along there. But again, Andrew, thanks so much for joining us for this conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Eric. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. And special shout out to our Patreon supporters. If you're not yet a Patreon supporter, you can join today for as little as $5 a month. And that definitely helps keep this work going. We are glad to partner with you for content that builds a new Christendom and reclaims biblical masculinity at the same time. You can check the show notes for the link to become a Patreon supporter of the Hard Men Podcast today. Stay frosty. Fight the good fight. Act like men. Thank you.